This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Maggie Dent. And a quick word before we jump into Nature Play. I wanted to let you know that we recorded this episode last year in 2019, well before any of us heard the word coronavirus and well before lots of the things that our kids love doing were shut down or cancelled. But here's the thing. Nature is still here and it's still waiting. Even if it's just the grass in your backyard or the plants on your balcony or some sticks, leaves that you found while walking your dog, it is all around us. And that means that you can still get your kids out into nature as long as you're well apart from anyone else. So let's get on with the episode. that in your local area, there is a children's play space that's filled with educational and developmental activities that's 100% free to use. I'm talking about nature, of course, with its trees for climbing and its sticks for constructing and its flower petals for mixing into potions. So let's be honest, busy parents. How often do you get your kids out playing in nature? And what do you really know about the positive impact it's having on them? Sophie likes to go out in the backyard with the dogs and jump on the trampoline and make mud pies, but they don't, they don't go out anywhere near as much as they should be. I'm, I'm the barrier for her not going outside because I'm doing housework. Yeah, and I've run out of time, yeah. I could take a few more opportunities at times when you don't really feel like going out, but, yeah, it it is good for them. My eldest daughter really craves uh, nature, uh, getting dirty, getting in the sand. It's very grounding for her. I can see that they're building resilience, they're building social skills outside, they're problem-solving, and those skills are developed much more outside than inside, I find, in their play. I do like to monitor the stick play because I do have a bit of a stick poking eye phobia. I was raised on a farm. Um, We were kids that just grew up being outside caring for animals and now we live on, you know, a couple of acres and we, my kids spend a lot of time outside. We have animals. That has a big impact on how I grew up is how I've carried it over my children and I think that they benefit. I'm Maggie Dent, and in this Parental as Anything, we're going to meander down the track, climb the most climbable tree and get some serious dirt under our nails to explore the fun and benefits of nature play. Nature play is awesome for growing bodies and brains. So what is nature play? Why do educators like me keep on banging on about it? I'm going to chat to two amazing advocates for nature play. I'll chat to a teacher whose lessons in tinkering, whittling, building fires, cubby building, raft building and hammock building absolutely captivates the children who attend his programs. 
And with me first is Gillian McAuliffe, founder of Nature's Atelier and the founding principal of Bowl Park Community School in Western Australia that I'm patron for. Gillian, why is nature so beneficial to children? One of the major things about it that is really important, there's nowhere else where you get all the domains of physical, social, emotional, fine motor, gross motor, imaginative play, creative play, and it's all there. And really importantly, it's all there and the child connects with it. You don't really have to do anything in terms of setting up a play space. And we can't do this indoors. We can't do nature play indoors at all. So let's have a look at what happened because it has diminished in its capacity. And we know that obviously we've had a massive increase in um, concerns and fears. You know, what else do you think has actually changed it so much in the, what, four generations? I think historically... It's to do mostly with the change of the urban landscape. Before then, children used to go out and play on the streets and everybody thought that was a good thing. After World War II, it sort of gradually started to change. And, you know, it isn't okay because the cars are hazard, so it makes sense that we say to the children, well, don't play in the streets anymore. Our biggest problem that's happened in the last 15 years is that we've had a generation of children who have become adults, who have become educators, who have become parents who aren't connected to nature. And we can work with the children, but we have to work with the parents as well. They don't just don't know how to play in nature themselves, so how can we expect them to play with children? In educators too, that's an issue. It's not all of them, obviously, but there's, there's a certain percentage that don't know what to do. I think one of the things that comes from being comfortable playing in nature is being comfortable being dirty and unclean and barefooted. And you do need them to have opportunities to know what a prickle is and why that's not very comfortable or why that's really cold. And I love that because nature gives every one of those senses Mm. this peak moment. There's another couple of senses which we don't talk about, and that's proprioception and vestibular senses. Now, a lot of people listening would not have heard those words before. But proprioception is your position in space. That's what you you learn about when you're spinning and when you're rolling down hills and when you're balancing. And it's um, really, really important for your success at school because you need to know uh, your proprioception in, in order to be able to write. You need to be able to know the position of your body in space to be able to fit comfortably in a, in a classroom. And the vestibular is, is again, that spinning and rolling and all those sorts of things. And that's, in the ears, really, really important. I think we need to talk about the risks of not allowing the children to play in nature. Another aspect which needs to be discussed with parents and often rings a bell is the development of short-sightedness. And if you think about it, when you're inside, you only have to focus short terms. When you're outside, when you're focusing on that crow on the branch of the tree, your eyes learn how to focus at different lengths. Going outside is not just um, a prevention, it can be a cure for it. So, And it's being prescribed by optometrists. And I think it's that balance again, we talk about screen and green, but we can't actually blame the screen for that one because it's definitely the time spent outside. You know, with everything in life, we have to get a balance. We can't get rid of screens, they're there. I don't watch... (laughs) too much they sort of yeah they're pretty free range when they're outside Uh, everything's relatively safe 
I don't need to beg them to get outside. They are the ones pushing to let's go explore. Exploring for us is going somewhere and investigating what's going on, spending all day there, climbing, looking in one spot and being uninterrupted by a parent or an adult and just let them be kids, let them discover, let them fall over, hurt themselves, pick each other up and move forward. When Sophie was was younger and we didn't have Madison, Madison hadn't been born, we spent a lot of time outside. So she would be carting the wheelbarrow around, digging holes, jumping on the trampoline, digging in the veggie patch, collecting flowers, all that sort of stuff. Uh, so Madison's 15 months. So since, since Madison's come along, we can't go outside because Madison isn't walking. So it's, it's hard having a 15-month-old contained in a pram outside for too long. I love to get out there and um, be in nature with them. We, on the weekend, we went along a, a creek and we explored along a creek and it was a really cold, miserable day from the outset. But once we got out there, it was really enjoyable. We were amongst the wildlife, there was nobody else around and it was a really lovely bonding experience for the family. Let's talk about risk and let's look at why parents are concerned. And obviously we live in Australia, so we've got a few more additional risks, even though you know, it gets exaggerated in countries overseas. But, Jill, you've got a different way of exploring this one and I really want you to help us uh, all as parents, educators and grandies. What is it about risk? Um, I think that we need to look at the underlying um, reasons why risk is, is a problem. Um, for, for a start, risk is a really negative term, okay, because it implies harm hmm. eventually, no matter what you do. I interviewed children four and five, three, four and five. I asked them how they like to play, what they like to do. They don't call it risk. Their comment was that they like things that were tricky. The word tricky I love because it does imply, I suppose, that there's, you know, there can be complications, but it's a very positive term. We need to have more trust in what the children are telling us and more trust that they will know how to do things. Now, my daughter took this absolutely beautiful video of um, my granddaughter and she was in that um, the beautiful water play park in Sydney. She was climbing up these rocky, natural rocky steps and she'd just walked, started to walk a couple of days before and she climbed up these steps and crawled across to a, a tree, used the tree to stand up, and then did that beautiful, I've just walking wobble over into the water park. But the whole point was that Elisa trusted her and she only gave feedback like, you did it. But when I talked to Elisa about it, she said, I had lots of white knuckle moments. <laughs> now, I think that's something which we all need to have <laughs> and celebrate is these white knuckle moments. When you're trusting a child, yeah. but not just trusting the child, it's also trusting the carers. Now you've just reassured me why I used to take a cup of tea up the other end of the house when I had um, my boys. The second one was a climber and I had such white knuckle moments. I had to take a cup of tea and go and sit in their bedroom. But you see, the thing is children with trees, particularly, they know what they can climb. If we push children to 
to climb trees before they're ready. That's when you get the injuries because the children will not climb if they're not ready to. And that also gives them that natural capacity to test their inner warning systems in their own way without us influencing them. And I think that's a, does that feel okay? Is that okay for you as a kind of, yeah, because I'm not the one climbing. Mm. And I know I've taught lots of mums with, you know, ferociously brave children to say, are you feeling uh, safe up there? Because mummy's not. Mm. Because I need to own it's not you. There's also other things like, you know, you can give them strategies to to assess what they're doing. Say, say well, is, is that branch um, thinner than your thigh? Yep. Yep. Well, perhaps it might, mightn't hold your weight, so let's find another branch, you know. So if you give them those strategies to assess. I also think we have a problem of parents and educators entrusting themselves. I had some wonderful mums with toddlers and four up to four-year-olds and they were the hoverers, but they tend to put their back to the children. And what's happened is those older children are now able to run up. There's this big, huge, like, tree that's dropped mm. right down. They run up there now and play in that. They said, now they're so much braver. We were making it difficult for our children to be brave. It's also one of the key things about children out in nature is that they need to be out of the adult's gaze. They need to hide and they articulate that. So these three, four and five-year-old kids said, we want to be able to hide and hide from the teachers. Now, it's not a, because we want to do bad things. It's because we want our privacy because, you know, we, we want our autonomy. So when I'm designing places, if I walk into a space, I don't say, Okay, there's a tree, there's a log, there's a, a puddle. A child walks into the space and they say, oh, there's something to climb. Oh, I can walk along that or I wonder what bugs are in there and all oh, that's squishy. So if you, as an adult, if you walk into a space and instead of just labelling things, if you talk about, if I was a child, what possibilities, what magic would I see? You will have a totally different point mm, of view about beautiful. the spaces. So what are your suggestions for how do we help this uniquely beautiful experience be a part of children's lives in our busy and screen-driven world? What are some of your tips? In Australia, we're very, very lucky. It hasn't disappeared. It's there. There's a, there's a tree on the street that you can stop and look for bugs. Um, I think it is that respecting and um, intentionally seeking those sorts of activities. But if you really don't get it, and I understand that you can go and join some wonderful educators and people out there who are running nature activities and learn. But grandparents, um, aunties, uncles, connect with your family network and work out how that you can bring that into it. If you live in an apartment, have a garden on your patio where the child grows plants and can watch or, or and wonder as the tomatoes grow and then... I think you have to, if you can't do it, you can't just wait back and say somebody else will do it. You actually have to make a personal decision that this is an important thing for my child and for their development and then seek ways that it can become part of you. Absolutely. And I think just being mindful that it matters is exactly the whole whole point of our conversation, Jill. Mm. Thank you very much for sharing your amazing knowledge. Thanks for having me.
As Gillian McAuliffe mentioned, one of the big reasons to get kids into nature play is to help build their resilience. So if there was an activity out there that put saws and knives in your kids' hands or taught them how to build fires, are you game enough to let them try it? Daniel Burton is a primary school teacher and co-director of Educated by Nature, also in Western Australia. Daniel, how do you get kids involved in tricky experiences like raft building and whittling and using tools that many kids have never, ever touched? And what happens when it works? Exactly. What happens when it works? When we uh, were first doing programs where we take children outside um, and give them these opportunities in nature, I think uh, we came from a very product-based focus. So we had a product in mind. Parents were asking us to to work with their children on a product. So learn a set of skills um, and build something, create something, make something. But what we realised is the children were asking for something completely different. They wanted space, they wanted time, and they wanted to be seen, to be seen by the adults and the, the leaders in the group. And it wasn't until we switched our focus and we stood back and we provided that space and time and we showed the children that we saw them that we could then provide opportunities for them to experience these sensory risk-taking opportunities, these risky things like using tools, using a saw. The amount of children that come up to me and when I present to them they can use a saw, their question is, I'm allowed to use a saw? (laughs) And then further to that, what if I cut my hand off? (laughs) Now that's a fair enough question, but my response to them is, I'm pretty sure if that saw was to get near your skin, you would stop sawing before you got to bone. Um, So the likelihood that you're going to cut your hand off is quite low. Um, So we talk about that idea that often we don't see children and we don't see that they're capable, so we don't give them these opportunities. And that message gets through really, really loudly. So children come to us and they, they say, you're giving us a saw, we can use a knife, hold on, we can light and cook on a fire together? And we say yes. Absolutely. And I think... We've got it over, as parents get over the fear base, don't we, around that? Because, you know, we we automatically put that as as too dangerous. Yeah. Now, tell us a couple of good stories. I'm sure you've had some stories of very brave children who've done some things. I go back to fire as a core story. (laughs) Um, Love working with fire and creating fire. I just heard all the parents go, what? Did they say fire? I said fire. Um, as a child, I grew up, we had a potbelly uh, fire in our house. Um, and as I grew up, I learned to use the axe to chop wood. I was the one sitting, lighting the fire and then poking it and roasting marshmallows and, and having that opportunity. Fire has this fear base around it. And that's actually a good thing because it opens our awareness and our alertness. So for children coming to fire, they have that sense of mm, this could be dangerous and that's okay. Because when we provide them with mentors and support, around that scary, fear-based experience, they open up their brain capacity to learn, to take on new information and to build experience. So then that joy comes in and they have the opportunity to try out fire. So we use uh, fire starters, so a fire steel, to do fire by friction. We do some work with matches, but we have that opportunity to um, try and light a fire the hard way. Um, even with uh, fire by friction through the methods that the um, Indigenous Aboriginals would use. And that's tricky. Yeah, that's It takes time. That's persistence. Absolutely. Which is something some of our kids are really lacking. uh, How frustrated do they get? Oh, so frustrated. (laughs) And this is where I think sometimes we need to remove the parents from that situation. Yeah. 
because we're in an age where it's seemingly not okay to fail. Yeah. Um, and um, we term it um, celebrating the friction <laughs> because when you're trying to light a fire, it's tricky and children get frustrated, but that's okay. And um, often in society, we, we celebrate the, the success. Yes and not the failure. So these experiences, that look on a face, you know, the aha yes. moment. <laughs> yep. I guarantee that those children then want to go home and share that moment, even though they didn't realise that it was such a significant moment for them. Absolutely. And I think uh, if we have spaces and time that children can do that by themselves with mentors that know the right time to step in and provide support, then that's key. The art of creating things making things and building things, things like rafts and cubbies, mm -hmm. where they have to negotiate with other people. Tell me a little bit about what you've noticed as, as children come, you know, and gradually get a little bit more competent. Yeah, so um, being in an environment where other children may already have those skills and have experienced that before, so peer teaching is so important. And seeing children come to an activity, come to an experience, come to a, a collection of resources, some logs, some sticks, some rope, and not have the confidence yet um, because I think they're seeing a lot of the time that a product is what mm -hmm. is expected of them. They need to finish something and they need to create something, that that failure is not okay. So we see children try and then give up or worse yet, not even try to begin with. And especially if there's an adult close by that is looking and watching, I think children seem to get the sense that they need to accomplish something. But if we turn away, they have opportunity to try, to fail. And also that turning away says to that child, I trust you. Mm. I trust you that you're not going to hurt yourself. Or if you do hurt yourself, you're going to come and tell me. Now, I want to go back to the fire one more okay. time because yeah. you know what happens also around a fire. It's not just the building and the cooking, marshmallows and lighting. And so we come together as humans and there's a, you know, there's an instinctual drive for us to gather and become mindful when there's flames um, before they eat too many marshmallows, of course. <laughs> um, and that's where you often, you know, it's ukulele time, it's story time. Now, stories, of course, is one of the most powerful ways that we can hear and have give children voices, mm. but they can hear the stories of, um, you know, ancient knowledge and wisdom that's coming and handed back to them. Is, is it still, you know, as I imagine, or I've just got a little fantasy view no, of it? <laughs> it's absolutely that. Um, we use story as a way to pass on knowledge, to pass on information, to pass on core beliefs um, and ways to be in the world. And there's no place better to do that than around a fire because that mesmerising gaze into the flames just captures our attention, brings focus, brings unity to the group, brings us back to that village and is then a perfect platform to share story. Yeah, that's why I keep encouraging families um, to go camping. Yeah. Because we know what happens out there, even though they'll whinge and complain the whole way out there, well, mm -hmm. there's no Wi-Fi. When they get there, they unplug. But not only do they unplug, they actually suddenly have, there is this drive to connect really deeply. So off they go and they exhaust themselves. Yeah. So after campfire time, they actually are all usually asleep by 8 o'clock. Mm. But not only that, it's the grown-ups I find who have these deep sighs of thinking, hey, how come we haven't managed this? Yeah. You know, So sowing seeds for future is, is incredibly important. Daniel, you're a legend doing good work and a good bloke. Thank you again. <laughs> uh, thanks, Maggie.
They can be up in, in the bush on weekends with Dad, having a little fire, cooking some sausages, cooking marshmallows. My five-year-old daughter loves to go outside and make mud pies. She loves to get her hands dirty and she gets very involved in what she's doing when she's outside, very imaginative. We went caving a little while ago and my daughter had just come straight from ballet and she just went charging off and she wanted to lead all of us and I had a little bit of claustrophobia. It was pitch black, it was a long 20-metre tunnel and she was just so brave. It was adorable watching this little seven-year-old march off in her ballet bun down this dark tunnel. So what do you reckon? Are you ready for an outdoor adventure with your kids? You are, aren't you? So my top tips for getting you and your kids outside. Seriously, we all need vitamin D and fresh air. Start small. Always have spare clothes and towels in your car or your bag just in case they spot a puddle or a stream or you see a really cool tree that needs climbing. Embrace these moments. Seriously, get excited because your enthusiasm will infect your children. And when it's winter and too cold and summer when it's too hot, seriously, aim for a window in the day to escape. I used to take my cuppa outside often and was soon followed by the dent lads and pretty soon they'd be playing and not notice me head back inside. Sometimes just sit at a distance and watch silently, not coaching, and let the kids navigate the experience. Your kids will spontaneously start looking for insects, collecting leaves and nuts. You might start a habit that you can do as a family for years to come. Speaking of nature play, there's a great Australian author called Alison Lester. She's written some fabulous Australian favourite picture books about magic beaches and family holidays and pet ponies. And they're all inspired by her own experiences playing outside as a kid. And she shares some of these stories with Sarah Konoski on the Conversations podcast. I raced up in my pyjamas in barefoot and there was Inky waiting for me. So, And she was a sweet old horse. Like She was so quiet. We used to dress her up in skirts and cardigans and stockings and things like that and ride her in the house. In the house? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, only if mum wasn't there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so gorgeous. If you want to hear more of Alison's story, you can hear it for free on podcast apps like Google and Apple and, of course, on the ABC Listen app and using your smart speaker. I'm Maggie Dent, and I'll catch you next time on Parental As Anything.